All right, good morning, everybody. It's a lot of fun to see those highlights from the Taste of Plum Creek last Sunday. And I want to say thank you once again to all of you who donated items or volunteered in any way to make that event possible. It took some flexibility to go to plan B and move things inside, but it was a great night. And one of the things I love about the Taste of Plum Creek is that we get the chance to show hospitality to people who are not from our church. And by the way, if you were one of those visitors and you made your way to our service this morning, I want to let you know we're glad you joined us. We love to welcome new people around here. And for anyone who is new to Plum Creek, uh, you chose a great day to visit. Uh, this, this morning, we're starting a brand new series called Why Church? And over the next few weeks, we're really going to dig into this idea of church. Uh, why was it started? What's the point? How do we know when it's working right, and how can we fix what's wrong? We all have different perspectives on these questions because most of us have our own personal story when it comes to church. Uh, for some of us, church is connected to some of our most treasured memories and significant moments in life. For others, our church experience left us with wounds and scars, and I'll be the first to admit the different versions of church that we encounter in this world are often very different than what God had in mind. But that begs the question, what did God have in mind? And to answer that, we're going to follow our normal pattern this morning, and we're going to look to Scripture here at Plum Creek, we really believe that God has spoken to us. He's given us His Word in the form of the Bible. And this is where we go to find answers to life's most important questions. So what does Scripture say about the church? A lot, actually. The church is defined and described in lots of places in the Bible. But I want to begin by reading something from the book of 1 Peter. And before we read this, let's keep in mind... This book of the Bible was written by Peter, one of the original 12 apostles, one of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, this is the same Peter who was there when the church started. On that day, Peter stood up in front of a huge crowd, and he preached a fiery sermon about Jesus. And after that sermon, thousands of people committed their lives to Christ, and they were baptized. But then years later, Peter writes this letter and he helps Christians understand what it means to be a part of the church. So let's listen to these words. Peter writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter wrote these words to the first century church almost 2,000 years ago, but these words still apply to the church today, and this passage helps us see that the church is not a building or a place. The church is the community of people who are genuine followers of Jesus. God knows exactly who that is. God knows who it is that, that deserved God's wrath because of sin, but then we've accepted the gift that He's offered to everyone. We've been saved by the grace of Jesus through faith in Jesus. And this group of people has been called out of the world 
set apart by God to live a different kind of life, a life that's centered on Jesus Christ, a life that brings glory to God. Now, for me, that description of the church is exciting and it's inspiring. But if I'm being completely honest, I haven't always come away from church feeling excited or inspired. I can remember times when church has seemed a little boring or dry. I can also remember times when church seemed to be full of people who were dead set on just arguing and bickering with each other. I think many of those arguments took place because people have different expectations of what church should be. So let's deal with that for a minute. What do people expect out of church? If we went around and and asked, what do you think the average person would say? Well, I don't have a scientific study to share with you, but based on what I've seen over the years, there are several common things that people expect from church, at least in our culture. I'll give you a short uh, list here, and just a disclaimer, I may not be talking about you specifically, I'm talking about people in general. And the first expectation I would put on the list is an inspiring worship service. People seem to really appreciate a group gathering that is positive and encouraging. But what does that service look like exactly? Well, again, it depends on the person, but the expectations often include a certain style or volume or length of singing. We know that people have lots of opinions about music, and that's certainly true when it comes to church music. There's also a common expectation of a well-communicated sermon. Uh, People want a preacher who is engaging, not boring. And a preacher should be able to deliver a clear message that makes a positive difference without going over the time limit, because we don't want to be late for lunch, right? I heard that amen. So that's the first expectation, an inspiring service. Uh, But I've also seen that people expect a strong blank program, and that blank would be filled in by whatever is important to that particular individual, whether it's a children's ministry or a young adult ministry or a sports program or a specific outreach program. The last thing I'll put on this list, it's also a common expectation, It's it's a clean church building maybe with a few conveniences like good parking or free coffee. That's not asking for too much, is it? Now, we could keep going, but let's stop and look at this list for a second. Do any of those expectations seem out of line? I don't think that any of those things are necessarily bad. That's a list of good things. And I certainly have my own preferences in all those categories. But let's shift gears for a second. Instead of asking what people expect from church, let's go back to the Bible. And what are some commands that God gave the church in Scripture? This would be a different kind of list, wouldn't it? Uh, We could open up to John chapter 15, verse 12, and see where Jesus told His followers, love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus said, love each other as much or in the same way that I have loved you. And how much did Jesus love us? Well, He loved us enough to die for us, didn't He? And that means in the community of the church, God commands us to be devoted to these relationships to the point where we are willing to lay down our lives for each other. Sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? 
We could also go over to Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus told his followers to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. A whole lot of centuries have passed since Jesus gave those instructions, but the job still is not done yet. Now, just like our list of human expectations, we could go on for a while naming God's commands, but I'll add just one more. In Galatians 6, 2, Christians are called to bear one another's burdens. And that's not always easy to do because whenever you get any group of people together, you'll find a lot of burdens, right? There will be physical needs, emotional, uh, spiritual, relational needs But the fact that it's difficult to meet all of the different needs, that's neither here nor there. It's still a command. But now we have two lists. And let's look at that first one again. Uh, this, uh, This is a list of expectations that people have of church. But are these things also found in the Bible? In some cases, yes. Uh, Scripture does talk about worship and preaching, but... It doesn't go into detail about the personal preferences that are often pretty important to us. For example, the Bible does not give a specific time limit for preachers. That's not a threat, it's just an observation. (laughs) Scripture also doesn't say much about the individual programs we like to see in a church. And we certainly don't get a description of what a church building looks like because in New Testament times, the church usually met in homes or in public places like the temple courts. Now, let's go back to that second list. This is a small sample of what God has commanded the church to do. I got the idea to make these lists from a preacher and an author named Francis Chan. And he said, once you have these two lists, it's time to ask yourself an honest question. And I should mention, if you're just visiting Plum Creek or you're not officially a part of our church, you're welcome to listen in on this, but I'm really speaking to to those who are members here. But the question is this, what would bother you more? What would be more upsetting to you? Would it upset you more if Plum Creek did not provide certain things on list number one or if we didn't obey the commands on list number two? That's a challenging thought, isn't it? And just to be clear, I'm asking this question of myself too. As part of the leadership here, we need to know, are we more concerned about pleasing people or pleasing God? I think back to some of those arguments that I've seen in churches over the years, and I can recall lots of times when people were angry about unmet expectations from list number one. However, it's been far less common to see someone get worked up because the church wasn't obeying commands from God on list number two. And like I said a minute ago, many of those human expectations, they're not bad in and of themselves. Everything on list number one, it's a good thing, right? But if we focus on human expectations, personal preferences to the neglect of biblical commands, we'll never be the church that God wants us to be. So here's how I'm looking at this series. I believe that God has given us clear instructions He's told us about the purpose of the church, the nature of the church. He's told us how the church should be organized, about how we should spend our time. 
The pattern has been laid out for us. But as we look across history and we look across our world today, we see a disturbing trend. Churches are very tempted to depart from God's plan. Individuals, congregations, entire denominations have departed from God's plan. And this departure is one of the contributing factors in a growing number of people deciding that the whole idea of church, it's outdated. It's outlived its usefulness. I'm sure you know some people who say, I just don't believe in the institutional church anymore. Uh, these days, my relationship with God is just personal between me and Him. Others say, well, I don't think the church was God's idea in the first place. I think it's a man-made idea. And listen, I won't pretend that our church or any church is perfect. Every church has issues because every church has people involved. It's true that some churches are too far gone. I would refuse to be a part of some of them. But the reality is the church is God's idea. Even though some have given up on it and some have legitimate reasons to criticize what they've seen, Followers of Jesus are still commanded by God to gather together with other believers to worship, to help each other grow. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day when Jesus returns. So God's will is really not in question here. God expects His people to meet together and encourage each other. The only way to become the church God wants us to be is to go back and follow the pattern that's laid out in Scripture. Otherwise, we'll create something of our own invention, just something that we happen to like. Francis Chan says that would be like spending your whole life learning how to make a, a great bowl of spaghetti. But then getting to the end of your life and hearing God say, thanks for the spaghetti, but I ordered a steak. You know, it hit me this week that I may be halfway through my adult life. And even if I retire late, uh, my ministry career is probably more than 50% over. That's a sobering thought because it brings home the fact that one day, I will stand before God. And even though my salvation comes by the grace of God and not by works, I still have to answer for how I spent my time in ministry. And I will answer for the decisions I made as a leader in the church. And when I see my Lord face to face, I want to hear him say, Doug, you followed my instructions. You did what I asked you to do. Well done. That's what I want to hear. So as we go through this series, let's, let's be committed to honesty and humility and let's allow God to speak into our lives and into our church and let Him tell us who we should be. Now every week during this series, we're going to answer a specific question. And today's question is, why was the church started? We haven't really answered that yet, have we? I said the church was God's idea, but why did he want it to exist? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's look at the earliest days of the church in the book of Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, 
Jesus has already accomplished his mission on earth. He spent three years in ministry, and then Jesus was nailed to a cross, and he was killed. He gave up his life to pay the penalty for our sins, and he paved the way for us to receive forgiveness and salvation. And then on the third day after the crucifixion, he rose from the dead, proving once and for all that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. But then soon after the resurrection, the time came for Jesus to return to heaven. And he had a plan for his followers to carry on his work, to take over his mission after he was gone. We read about this in Acts chapter 1. Let's look at that together, starting with verse 6. It says, Then they, the disciples, gathered around him, Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Just like that, Jesus was gone. And the disciples were left behind, and I'm sure they were like, what did he say? Does he really expect us to carry on his work without him? And did he really say that we're going to take this mission all over the world? That idea would have been completely overwhelming for a group of ordinary, unschooled guys who had never been outside of Palestine. But Jesus didn't leave his disciples to accomplish this by themselves. In verse 8 there, Jesus said that his followers would receive power from the Holy Spirit, that, that God's presence would fill them and enable them to fulfill this calling. As you read on in the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. The disciples are together, and they're still kind of reeling from recent events, but then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God shows up with unmistakable power. From that point on, those disciples are different. They have a boldness and a strength that they never had before, and that happened on the day the church started. And like I said earlier, this is when the Apostle Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he preaches about Jesus in front of this big crowd. Let's jump into the middle of Peter's sermon. Acts 2, verse 36, the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. Peter, in this sermon, says to the people, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. We need to make sure we understand what's going on here. Peter is telling this group of people, hey, remember what happened a few weeks ago? Remember what you did? Remember when you were shouting and demanding that Jesus be crucified? You guys really blew it. That was a horrible wrong because you participated in killing the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, from that point, things could go one of two ways. Either, the, either this crowd would rise up and do to Peter exactly what they did to Jesus, or they would listen with open hearts and be convicted. Let's read on and see their response. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, 
repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, He warned them and He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted His message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church began with an explosion of growth, and from that day forward, they were off and running. The rest of the book of Acts tells the story of what God did through the church in its earliest days. And then once you get past the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament gives us a blueprint for what the church should look like. In the New Testament, the Greek word that's often translated as church is the word ekklesia, which means the assembly or those who have been called out. In that word, we start to understand God's purpose for the church. Now, let's go back to that description we read earlier in 1 Peter 2, 9, where he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. God established and He assembled His church for two specific purposes. The first is to display God's glory on earth. And the second is to be used by God to share His goodness with humanity. God called the church to be set apart from the world at large, to experience a life-changing relationship with Jesus, and then help others find a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The church is called to receive God's grace and then share God's grace. That is an amazing thing when you think about it, that, that God has chosen to partner with people to do His work and to bring glory to Himself. Now, why would He do that? Why would the Creator of the universe decide to involve you and me in what He wants to accomplish? I'm not really sure, to be honest, but it's an awesome privilege. God wants me and God wants you on His team. He wants your life to have real significance. He, he wants to work through you so that you will have an eternal impact on the lives of others. Seriously, how cool is that? Because so many people feel empty and aimless. Their lives have no real sense of purpose. But it doesn't have to be that way for anyone because God invites everyone into a relationship with Him through Jesus. And then when that relationship begins you become a part of His church, and then He puts you to work for His glory, for His purpose. Now, we have only begun to scratch the surface of what Scripture says about the church, and we're going to deal with several questions over the next few weeks, like who is the church really for, and what should it look like, and what part should you play in the church? But I want to close today by looking at one of the metaphors we see for the church in the New Testament. In several different places, the church is described as the body of Christ. And this is a powerful image. It tells us a lot about the purpose and the nature of the church. And the most detailed passage about the body of Christ is found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's read part of that chapter together. 1 Corinthians 12, starting with verse 12. 
It says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I love this passage, and I love this description, because it's so easy for us to understand. We all have a body, so we can all relate to this. But I do want to make sure that we get three important takeaways from this passage. These three things can make a difference in how we function as a church, starting right now. First, we see here that the body of Christ should include very different members working together in unity. The church is supposed to be one body made up of diverse parts. And outside of church, we may have very different backgrounds, different interests, different hobbies, but in Christ, we share a common Savior and a common commitment to do what He's asked us to do. Did you catch verse 13? It says, we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Now, in the first century, it was no small thing to get those specific groups together into one unified community that functions together. That's the power of having Christ in common. We should see very different kinds of people in the same body. The second takeaway I want us to notice is that everyone in the body has a distinct role to play, and that role is determined by God. Don't miss these words in verse 18. God has placed the different parts in the body just as He wanted them. And before we're done with this series, we're going to talk about how you can be confident that you're living out the purpose that God has for you. But here's the last thing I want to notice. This is not just a metaphor. The church is the body of Christ. It's designed to do God's work in the world. It's not that the church is merely like a body. The church is a body, the body of Christ. So if Jesus wants to get something done in this world today, most often He will call on the church to do it. That's the urgency of who we are and what we're about. So it doesn't make sense to think of church as some optional activity in our lives. We can't think of church as something we do just for an hour or so every week if we happen to have the time. No, we are the body of Christ. And we're surrounded by a world that desperately needs the love of Jesus. And He's called us to go out and share His love, to make disciples. That's where Plum Creek gets our mission, leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation. Every member of the body has a vital purpose in the mission of Christ. 
We need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. That's why we've decided to update our Body of Christ display out in the gathering area. Ever since I came to Plum Creek, I have loved seeing that wall. I I love the message that it communicates. And if you're like me and you weren't here when this building was built, uh, you may not know that the images in this display are not just random stock photos. Uh, Those were members of Plum Creek. Some of you can still go out there and see your eye or your hand or your ear. But we know that in recent years, there are a lot of newer people who aren't represented on that wall. So we're taking new photos. We're redesigning the grid. And you can go out after service today or next Sunday and get your picture taken. And if you are a part of this body, I hope you'll do that. These photos remind us that every member of this church has a high calling, an important purpose. That's the message of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, which says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. If you've given your life to Jesus, you are a part of the body. So let's take this month and let's commit to be the body that God wants us to be. Let's refuse to drift away from God's pattern in favor of personal preferences Let's go back to that original blueprint that's found in Scripture. And if we need to make some changes, we'll make changes. Our purpose and our calling is too important to settle for less. Jesus deserves nothing less. Let's pray. Father, it's so humbling to think about the fact that you have chosen to involve us in your work, what what you want to accomplish in this world. As Flawed as we are, you give our lives significance. You want to use us to make an eternal difference so that our lives aren't empty and meaningless and so that we can not only experience your love but share your love and bring you glory. Lord, I know that churches have not always shared your love well. I pray, Lord, that your church today will be open to the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'll equip us to fulfill our calling in a supernatural way, that that we will love each other in a way that's not humanly possible, so that the world can look at us and say, I've never seen love like that. Lord, let that be true in us. Lord, uh, I pray that you will use us for all the things that we've talked about today, for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.